Hey, thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace, it is our full conviction that as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. We are committed to teaching the whole counsel of God that the people of God might be built up and that lost sinners might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. to dive into uh, what in many ways is the, the center of gravity in this letter that Paul has written. And uh, it is a beautiful, actually hymn, many believe, that uh, was possibly sung. And Paul is, is not sure if he initially wrote it or if he's making reference to something that was already in use. But we know, as, as Dave said, that the Spirit of God had inspired these words. And, and Paul, in a very poetic form, is reminding us of the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and uh, how that should impact the way we live out our lives to one another. And so I had thought about uh, this whole picture of condescending or of having compassion for something that is lowly. And, and as a child... Um, I suppose even somewhat still as an adult, I've had somewhat of a soft spot for for hurting or injured animals, and I've been laughed at a number of times for uh, trying to help them. I remember one time we were working on a house, um, just I guess it would have been east of Sexsmith, and uh, we were framing this house, and I'd noticed this little mother mouse um, off to the side, and she was trying desperately to get her little babies out of the one hole, and she was moving them across, and and I knew that there was uh, a lot of crows around and stuff. And so I thought, oh man, she, she dropped one and she kind of went back and forth. And then she decided to, to take the one in her mouth and leave the little stranded one there. And I felt so bad for this poor little mouse. And I went and picked it up and put it where she was taking them. And of course, my coworkers thought that was hilarious and, and gave me a very hard time about having <laughs> mercy on this mouse. And the homeowner was upset. She's like, you should be killing those mice. I don't want them in my walls. And uh, this whole picture of of compassion and mercy, and yet, as much as I think at times maybe I show a somewhat uh, a level of compassion for something lowly like that, um, it certainly has a limit. I mean, could you imagine um, actually becoming identified with the creature in order to help it or, or in order to rescue it from its plight? Well, there's no way I would actually put myself in harm's way for the benefit of that little creature as much as I think, you know, it's cute or it could use my help. There, our, our compassion is often very limited in that sense, isn't it? And as soon as it might cost us something, then we're often quick to, to pull away. And, uh, and yet, as we consider this portrait of Christ and the humility of Christ, um, the, the incarnation, as we call it, we, we see a profound and almost incomprehensible portrait of what it means to serve, what it means to give, what it means to, 
to lay down one's rights for the sake of another. And as I said, the, this entire letter is, is really centered around this portion. Um, sometimes Paul will, will have a, a common theme running, running from beginning to end, and, and he will kind of develop that thought throughout the letter. Uh, but in this case, there is this kind of central um, weight of gravity here that Paul is now going into, and, and the rest of the letter is, is somewhat built around it. It somewhat revolves around this portrait of Christ in his humility. And, uh, and, and so let us begin as we look at this portrait of what Christ has done. And Paul, as he's been exhorting the Christians at the church, he exhorts them again, and we kind of uh, started in on it last week a little bit, but uh, in verse 5, um, after encouraging them to look out for one another's interests, to, to not be self-seeking, but to be seeking the, the good of one another and, and to be looking to promote unity, he, he then begins to focus in on the foundation of this kind of life. Why, why is it that Christians are to be seeking the good of others? Why is it that we're to be looking out for the interests of others? And he, in verse 5, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he reminds them again that, that our attitude and the way that we relate to one another, it should be rooted in the way that Christ has related to us. And our attitude should be that of Christ's. When he, leaving the glory of heaven, joined himself to our humanity and took upon himself human flesh. And this, Paul says, is to be our, our attitude. Um, we are to have this same mind. And we have a little bit of variance with the, the translations, but I think we, we get the idea. The, um, as Dave was reading from the New King James, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was... Um, also in Christ Jesus, um, the, the NIV, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Um, the NASB, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, the, the uh, English standard, which I'm reading from, um, a little bit different uh, <laughs> emphasis perhaps, says, um, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the... the, the, the the differences are very subtle and, and, and not, I would say, extremely significant because we understand as Christians um, that, that we are filled with the Spirit and so our mindset and our attitudes are to be Spirit-driven and so that they could be said that it is the attitude of Christ or that is ours in Christ. Um, the, the point is that we are to be identified with the same kind of attitude and mindset that Christ himself had in his coming. And throughout this letter, we've, we've seen this before as well, that, that Paul shows how our actions are the byproducts of our mindset, our attitude. Um, what is happening internally will affect what happens externally. And this is so very important for us to, to consider as Christians. And again, we don't want to go down the road of simply positive thinking and, and remove our, our mind and our thoughts from our need of God's grace, from the renewing of the Spirit. But at the same time, we are to meditate upon the Word of God. We're to set our mind upon things above, as Paul will say later on. And as we have that attitude, as we are renewed in our mind, our actions will also follow. And, and this is the case even for Christ. 
And we will see then first the attitude of Christ, and then we will see the actions of Christ. And one flows from the other. And in fact, if we, if we see ourselves in our own personal lives, um, actions that we know are wrong or displeasing, a lot of times we make the mistake of trying to correct the behavior. And uh, we, we see this uh, a lot with, uh, with modern uh, even medicine or approaches to, to problems. It is just behavior modification. And we have learned ways to even use drugs to to change behavior, to produce a certain kind of outcome. But for the Christian, it must begin in the mind. It must begin with our heart, with our attitudes before God. And as we focus there, we begin to see the correct outward outworkings of that heart and that attitude. And this is why Jesus, of course, would rail against the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day because it was all external. They had mastered the the art of this external kind of religion but had neglected to deal with the matters of the heart and the attitudes of the heart that God sees. So we see first the the attitude of Christ as uh, Paul points to Christ in this hymn, in this poem, um, and, and we see... Uh, in verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so this is the, the attitude of Christ. This is the mindset of Christ. That he, being equal with God, in the form of God, did not count that something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, the action then, and takes the form of a slave, or some translations will say a servant or a bondservant. Paul begins by reminding the church of the true identity of Christ. And this is essential. Uh, Before we can really understand the incarnation, the coming of Christ into the world, and how that should affect us, we must understand who Christ is. Who is he? Who was he prior to coming? Who is he now? Who was he during his incarnation? And Paul goes back prior to the coming of Christ as a man, and he reminds us that he was in the very form of God. He was equal to God. And we have to, we have to be very careful as we, as we navigate through this doctrine of the Trinity, of the deity of Christ, because um, many, many religions have made shipwreck of their faith by getting this wrong. And many of the cults um, at the very center of their problems is to do with the deity of Christ or the incarnation of Christ. Even the Gnostics in Paul's day um, had various problems with understanding how Christ was divine and yet became a man. Um, Some would say that if you were walking with Christ on the seashore that uh, you would only see one set of footprints. You would see yours but not his because he was only spirit. He was not actually um, physical and then that would be to deny the humanity of Christ whereas others like um, you know, we think of the, the Arian heresy or the modern-day uh, Jehovah's Witness that would deny the deity of Christ and would, would place too much emphasis on his humanity. We must keep this in balance as Paul has put before us. And we must affirm that Christ is equal to God. He is in, was in the form of God. James White, in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, said the Trinity 
is the highest revelation God has made of himself to his people. It is the capstone, the summit, the brightest star in the firmament of divine truths. And yet it is one of the most mysterious truths to us. It's one of the most uh, complex, and, and no doubt we will spend billions of years growing in our knowledge of the triune God and still only begin to scratch the surface of who this God is. And uh, yet we see it is essential that we affirm the truths of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the Muslim faith would accuse Christians of being polytheists. They would say that we worship multiple gods because we affirm this trinity, this three and yet one. But that is to misunderstand what the doctrine is. We must affirm that there is one God. We are monotheistic in that sense. We are not talking about multiple beings as though there was Jesus as a God and then the Father as a God and then the Spirit as a God, but they are equally one being and yet distinct in person. And this is the the mystery for us. But first, let us remind ourselves that there is one God. Uh, We find throughout the Old Testament, verses like Isaiah 43 10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God." There is one God. There is one being who is divine and who is God. We find the prophet Jeremiah, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Psalm 90 verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And yet, we also see within this being who is God, there exists, again quoting uh, James White in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, he says, Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being, three eternally co-equal, co-eternal persons. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And even as we try to illustrate this, uh, our illustrations break down and usually end in in heresy. And so we're oftentimes struggling to even find a good analogy to to use. Some have used, you know, the the Son, or the Son is, um, you know, the, the... physical object of the sun which produces heat and produces light and yet it's from the sun but uh, even in that you see um, maybe a sense of, of, of uh, what was called modalism where there is one God but he takes on different forms um, sometimes the father sometimes the son sometimes the spirit but it's, it's one being just more like a, a transformer in that sense and some people have that view of God but that's not the biblical doctrine that, that Christ Um, being co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. Perhaps um, 
One of my favorite verses in the New Testament from Paul, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. He says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And there you see Paul affirm one God and yet make reference to the Father and to the Son. And so we have this being who is one and yet the persons within that being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We find exhortations in the scriptures like 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And they, they use the, the, this phrasing, the, the three persons who are also equally God. We find throughout the, the scriptures, um, the baptism of Jesus is another great picture to go to, to see where we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And, and the, one of the helpful things about the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3.14 is you have all three present at that very moment and manifestly present. So you have Jesus, the man, the God-man, being baptized. You have the Father speaking audibly. And you have the Spirit of God coming upon the Son and anointing Him. And so there you have all three persons who, of, of, of the Godhead um, manifest in a passage. And so you can't say that it's just God who is, is somewhat of a, a transformer uh, and, and sometimes the Son, sometimes the Father, sometimes the Spirit. No, there they are all three present and manifest. Or we could think of uh, the Mount of Transfiguration where, where Jesus is transfigured before the disciples and they see His glory and the Father speaks from heaven and, and there again we see um, the Father and the Son present. We could look to even some of the creeds coming out of church history where a lot of times the creeds were centered on this issue because it was so often debated, so often brought into question. We could think of the Athanasian Creed and uh, an excerpt from that is we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And it is a profound and and, and oftentimes mind-boggling truth. But that does not mean that we shouldn't think about it, that we shouldn't talk about it, that we shouldn't study it. Because God has revealed this to us in His Word. And so we should press in and uh, look to Him to give us strength and understanding. So specifically then, Paul is, is referencing the deity of Christ. That He was in the very form of God prior to this emptying that um, we will look at in a moment. It's often this specific um, aspect of the Trinity that is, that's in question, that specifically the deity of Christ, because as we think of His incarnation, His becoming a man, um, it is so easy to become confused about who He is and uh, who He was prior to that and, and who He is now. A lot of times people are okay with, with the Father um, being God, but the Son will be brought into question. 
that we find the deity of Christ affirmed again and again throughout the scriptures. Um, of course, the, one of the most famous passages, you know, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We see the scriptures clearly affirming that Christ is God. He is divine. He is of the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. But we see Christ... um, as the one who would humble himself, who would come to our rescue, that he might deliver us. And so we see this attitude of Christ, though being equal with God in his essence, sharing in the, in the glory of God, we find that he, uh, we have in, in verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does this mean? Again, we'll have some different, uh, as you look at different translations, they will vary a little bit on how they, they translate this verse. But um, a few examples, again, that, this was from the English Standard. The, the NIV translates it, Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So very similar. Um, being in the very nature God, there might be even actually a bit clearer than form of God, because we could think of form as like, a shape or, or something that is similar but not exactly the same. But the word does have to do more with the, the essence of who God is, the nature of God. Um, the King James, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And the word robbery there is because the, the word has this picture of grasping, of, of grabbing on to something. And so that was oftentimes the word used for robbery because as a robber would break into a house and grab onto something and then, and then run out. Um, it's this picture of Christ not grasping onto um, the, the, the privileges and the glory that were his because of his deity. The Nazbi being very similar, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so you get the idea that Christ, though he had every right and privilege and claim on divine rights and privileges and glory, that he set that aside, that he he, he turned himself away from those privileges and that glory in order to come down and to deliver us from our sin and to vindicate the justice and the holiness of God. And what does it mean that he emptied himself? And so then we come um, from the, the attitude of Christ into the action of Christ so he had this attitude of, of not claiming um, what is rightfully his, but to set himself apart from it, to empty himself. And, uh, and we see this humility of Christ. Well, we can't take emptying to mean that he became less God. And I thought this for a long time, actually myself, for, for a number of years, I was thinking of it more in the sense that there were some of the attributes of God that Jesus had temporarily set aside and uh, in his incarnation, and then he would take those up again at his exaltation. But that is actually moving towards a heresy, what was called the kenosis heresy, which is that Jesus 
became a bit less God in his incarnation, and in that sense emptied himself. And that's wrong, that Jesus is always fully God, always fully um, sharing in the full essence of who God is. The attributes of God are always um, Christ's as well. He never stops being divine in his humanity. So what does the emptying mean? Well, it has, it, it has to do with the privileges of sharing in the glory of God, of, of uh, even at times we'll see Jesus choosing not to, to, to use his authority that he has, that's rightfully his, but he chooses not to use it. And we think of when Peter, you remember um, the night when Jesus betrayed and Peter, looking to defend Christ, takes up the sword and he chops off the ear of one of the guards and, uh, and, and Peter thinking him that he's going to you know, rescue Christ from this great tragedy, Jesus rebukes him and he says, Peter, don't you realize that, that I could pray to the Father and have 12 legions of angels come now and deliver me? That, that the authority is Christ's. He has all authority. He could have called the full armies of heaven at any moment to break in and crush the, his oppressors, but he chose not to. He, he had emptied himself in that sense of his divine privileges and rights. And, uh, and he takes the form of a bondservant. And uh, you, if you think for a moment in the, the Garden of Eden, uh, you start to see this, this contrast that, that Paul is making with what Adam and Eve did. Do you remember the, the promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden um, from the serpent that if they, would, if they would take the forbidden fruit, they would what? They would, they would become like God. And so, so they have this picture of, of, of them seeking something, and they're seeking this div- divine essence, this equality with God is what Adam and Eve were seeking, and what the serpent had lied to them and told them they would actually achieve. And, and you have them reaching out and grasping onto this fruit that they would be more like God. They would be um, divine in that sense. And, and you have now Christ portrayed as the new Adam, as the greater Adam. And he does exactly the opposite as to what Adam and Eve did. Instead of reaching out and grasping what would seek to adva- or would maybe advance his position, Christ did the opposite. He actually released what was rightfully his that he might deliver us. He willingly humbled himself. He set aside the privileges that were his. And so you see this, even this picture of the grasping and the, and the choosing to not grasp in order to humble himself and to deliver us. And so we have the, the setting aside of his glory as an action of Christ. And we also have this joining to himself uh, of humanity, um, that he becomes a man, that he, we're told, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we have then not only the divine nature and essence of Christ, which never changed, which has not changed and will not change for all eternity, but we have then 
Christ adding to himself humanity. And so it's not that he stopped becoming God in his incarnation, but that he joined to himself humanity, taking upon himself a human nature. And so we, we talk of Christ having two natures. And, and this is not true of, of anyone else. Um, Christ has a divine nature and he has a human nature upon his incarnation. And so at times when you're reading the Gospels, this is very important to understand because a lot of, and even talking to a lot of, uh, say, Jehovah's Witness, and you're trying to talk to them about the deity of Christ, and they will point to passages where Jesus' humanity is very evident, and they will say, see, that, that can't be God. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't get thirsty. God doesn't get tired. Um, God doesn't die. So how can you say that Jesus is God? And they would point to a lot of those references that would highlight the humanity of Christ. But when you understand that that he has two natures operating, then you can make sense of it. Yes, I see his humanity. He is growing hungry. He is thirsty. He is exhausted physically and tired in his humanity. But in his divinity, we see Christ casting out demons. We see Christ calming storms with a word. We see Jesus walking on water. We see Jesus raising the dead. We see Jesus taking loaves and fish and multiplying them to feed a great multitude. We see Christ atoning for the sins of man as the God-man. And it's as you understand the coming together of these two natures that you begin to read the Gospels and, and, and not find yourself just terribly confused as to how this can be. Because he is fully man and fully God. And even now in heaven, he maintains this this dual nature, this divine human nature. Although he is now glorified. He is the glorified God-man interceding now in heaven for us. He is, as Paul would say, the first fruits in that sense. Because he is glorified as a man, the first fruits of a great harvest to come, when, when we will become like him in his glorification. And, and all of this is going on in, in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to keep uh, both of those realities before us, or we will find ourselves in error, going down either an overemphasizing um, of the divine nature and neglecting the fact that, yes, he was human. Even as you consider the death of Christ, um, you, you might think, well, how is it that, that the eternal God can die? He can't die, right? And that's right, he can't die. So who died upon the cross? Well, it was the man, Jesus Christ, offering himself in his divinity. Christ did not die um, for he is eternal. He cannot die. And, and, and we see these, these things at play. And then, yes, it is confusing. And I know that even as I try to, to talk about it, to explain it, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, keep me from saying something that's going to be misleading. Um, and yet it is a beautiful picture of the great humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I came across... Uh, well, actually, I, I think it was MacArthur who quoted Lewis. So I'm going to quote Lewis and kind of quoting MacArthur, quoting Lewis. So anyways, it's a C.S. Lewis quote. I didn't read this book. I, 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 um, 
as I said, borrowed it from MacArthur. But it was a, a beautiful description of the humility of, of Christ by Lewis. And uh, it was in his book called Miracles. Uh, Miracles. And uh, this is what he writes. He says, In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seedbed of the humanity which he himself created. But he goes down to come up again and bring ruined sinners up with him. He goes on and says, One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift it. He must, also, he must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think, writes Lewis, of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanquished, rushing down through the green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface, again holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below where it lay, colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. The doctrine of the Incarnation is emphatically at the center of Christianity, that the Son of God came down, he says. No seed ever fell so far from a tree into so dark and cold a soil as the Son of God did. And we see the great work that Christ, we can't fathom the depths that Christ went and the, the heights from which he plunged. We can't fathom the glory that Christ had set aside in order to deliver us. But we can certainly rejoice that this is what Christ has done. He has identified with our weakness. He has clothed himself in humanity. He has felt what it is to be hungry and to be lonely and to be, to be tired. And he has taken upon himself our sin upon the cross. Having done no sin himself, he becomes our perfect sacrifice. Not that he would remain in the grave but that he would burst out of the grave and lift us with him back to heaven. And so we rejoice, but Paul says, because of this great work of Christ, we too are to have this mind among ourselves. There should be really no excuse for the Christian to not serve one another. No matter how frustrated you might be with your spouse, with your child, with a family member, with a fellow church member, we really don't have any excuse to not stop and help and serve because Christ has done such a work for us. And sometimes I find myself complaining or even maybe internally complaining about, oh, it's just 
You know, it's so frustrating when I have to, to help clean up around the house or help pick up some dirty laundry or help with the kids or, you know, and I just feel like I'm just, I'm just this is not fair, right? I've been working all day. I don't want to come home and, and help do things. And, and yet you think for a moment, what has Christ done for me? Am I really going to hold on to my pride and my self-righteousness when Christ has condescended so far to rescue us. And we see even as we consider the work of global missions, there's a parallel to what Christ has done. Going to a place where we're out of our comfort zone for the sake of others, it it really ought to compel us into reaching out into places that we're otherwise not inclined to go. Talking to people that we really otherwise would not talk to or associate with because we see what Christ has done, leaving the courts of heaven to deliver us. And so I pray that we meditate upon this work of Christ and allow it to compel us in our actions. And if you have not received from Christ, then how could, how could we who have been ensnared by sin, slaves of sin, reject the one who, who leaves the very courts of heaven to deliver us, to lift us up? All we have but is to confess our sin, to repent, turn from it, acknowledge that it's death, acknowledge that it brings about the judgment and wrath of God, and then cling to Christ who has offered himself and paid in full our price. Believe upon Jesus and be saved. Be baptized in obedience to what Christ has done. And I pray that is true for each one here. Let's close with prayer and we will have a song as we finish. Lord God, it would seem that we have no right to even talk of such things many times, Father. And yet we know that it is only because of Christ that His righteousness has covered over us. His, His perfect life has been credited to us by faith, Lord. And so we can come before Your throne with confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in what Christ has done, in the sufficiency of His work, Lord, and and, and that You are pleased by His sacrifice and His perfect life. Lord, I pray You help us to be steadfast. And we know we can grow discouraged. And uh, Lord, we can grow impatient to waiting for the day when, when our faith will be sight. I pray that we would persevere in this life, that we would not squander the time that You've given us. But Lord, we would continue to invest it for your glory and for your kingdom. And we thank you for your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, Thanks for listening to this sermon. We pray that you were built up and encouraged in your faith and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you'd like to know more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca or you could write to us at redeeminggracebiblechurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you to answer any questions that you might have. God bless you.